Welcome to the Game of Crowdfunding Interview Edition. It's going to be a good one. One, we've got uh, who who's joining me in studio that's usually not part of the Game of Crowdfunding interviews. The Canadian is back two days in a row. <laughs> that's right. The Canadian is here to help uh, do this interview. And why are you here to help do this interview? Well, uh, it has to do with who we're going to be talking to, of course. So who are we talking to on Google Hangout today? Hi, this is Dan Yarrington. I'm the CEO of Game Salute. And how this kind of came about is uh, several of you have contacted me in various forms asking uh, my overall opinion on Game Salute and my personal involvement with Game Salute, which right now this is my personal involvement with Game Salute. I haven't really had a, a lot of dealings with uh, Dan and some of the other people over at Game Salute. I do know a lot of independent uh, game designers and publishers that have been using them for fulfillment. And I know uh, a little bit of that side of it, but you know, I've always had to kind of start my answer off with, well, I don't have a personal relationship. And, and uh, so that got me to a point where after a couple weeks of getting some of those questions, it, it kind of just became a, let's have a conversation. So I reached out and Dan was kind enough to uh, give us some time so we can talk about game salute uh, their processes, and of course, how they fit into the Kickstarter uh, realm, which is what the game of crowdfunding is really all about. So, Dan, starting off, GameSalute's been around for quite a while pre Kickstarter. So, uh, where did the idea to start GameSalute kind of come from, and how did that start, come to form? Sure. So, first, you have to look back a little further. I've been in the industry since '96, and uh, I've been active with Myriad Games since 1999. Myriad Games is a retail chain of stores that we own. We have four locations now. So that's sort of my background. I've been doing that continually since then. And so then back in 2007 or so, we had a lot of, I've been on a lot of industry boards on, at Gamma and various places. And you hear a lot of the same complaints over and over again. Oh, why don't, we should do this. Why isn't there a pre-order system that works? Uh, why aren't box sizes this way? Oh, various things, right? And it's just the same complaints over and over again. And I realized after 10, 11, 12 years or whatever, that I was just hearing the same complaints over and over again, no solutions. Or people would say, oh, it'd be great if they did this, but nobody would actually do it. So that's where GameSalute was really born out of, was like, hey, we just want to make this organization that will come up with these solutions and implement them, actually do something, as opposed to just saying, why aren't we doing something? So that's really where GameSalute was born. And the whole branding, of sort of, we've got sort of a pseudo-military theme, and the idea was that we're saluting greatness in games, you know, we're recognizing greatness, and our motto, or our, not really our motto, but our mission statement was then and remains to provide tools and services to make the tabletop games industry better. That's a very broad statement. Well, what does that mean? What are these tools and services? So back in 2008, 2009, we were just doing like news, reviews. Uh, it was back then, it was through just gamesalute.com. It was all a news site. And then that's since transitioned to gamebugle.com as the news site and reviews and all that. And uh, we expanded since then into a lot of requests from people. So we had back in 2010, we had Clever Mojo and Serling Games and uh, Smiley Pop came to us and they said, hey, we'd love to have you help us with fulfillment and sales. Like we, That's a problem that we have. And so by our mission statement, we're like, well, that, that's something we should help with, right? And we knew all the people in the industry that do that sort of stuff. So we're like, oh, we'll just talk to these people. They can do that. But especially as Kickstarter developed, which Clever Mojo was one of the first, you know, Alien Frontiers was like the fourth Kickstarter campaign in tabletop games. Yeah. So it really started that. And ever since then, we've had people that are like, well, we need a little something different than what the traditional channels supply. So everything that we've done has been in reaction to requests from people and just, you know, looking at the industry and saying, what do we want? And then building it up from there. 
And we actually went full time with that. So we've been around since 2008 for Game Salute. And then we went full time with that in 2011. Uh, and so I sort of wear those dual hats. I'm still the CEO. I call myself the founder and CEO of, of Myriad Games because we've got a great team of people that run that company. And then my full time job is Game Salute. So I do all that uh, chief bottle washer sort of running around doing whatever needs done. Nice. How close of a tie is there to Myriad Games and Game Salute? I mean, is there a, a distinct uh, separation for you? Oh, yeah. Back in, so originally it was just, it was sort of a division of Myriad Games just from an organizational standpoint. Mm-hmm. It was a separate entity because we were doing things that were bigger. Like if we were doing GameStoreLocator.com, for instance, we had at the time, I think, two locations. There was no point in us doing that and branding it as, it's the Myriad Games Store Locator. <laughs> like, but that doesn't make any sense. So we wanted to have that distinctly very from the beginning. We said, these are things that we're doing for the whole industry. So they'll benefit Myriad Games, but no more than they benefit any other local store uh, or really any store or gamer in general. We wanted, you know, we made the news that we wanted to see. We made the news site that we wanted to see. We collected the podcast stuff that we wanted to, to listen to, that sort of stuff. And so they are really distinct. In 2011, we actually split them into separate companies because originally we were thinking, oh, this will just be some little side thing. We won't won't really be that big a deal. We'll do it part-time, like really, really part-time, basically volunteer basis. And then as it became evident that it was growing bigger and bigger uh, in 2010, it grew quite a bit. And then in 2011, we officially sort of split it off into its own company. So now I really, I, I walk into my own stores for Myriad Games and I go, oh, this game came out. That's great. Like <laughs> I, I'm not really that involved with that. I, I'm, I talk to you know the the staff every every day, but I'm not uh, in the in the trenches there, so to speak. It, so it really is a very different thing. I mean, what we do is very different. Retail chain versus kind of everything else, and that's really what Games ended up doing over time. As people were asking us, could you run a Kickstarter campaign for us? Could you ship this stuff for us? Could you do some art for us? Could you do some graphics? Could you edit my rules? Could you, you know, all these things? And effectively, we sort of accidentally became a publisher because we were realizing that. We were helping people do all this stuff for their Kickstarter campaigns. Oh, can you help me with production? I don't know anybody to do that. Oh, yeah, we know people that can do that. Okay, we'll help you do that. And then uh, Island Fortress is actually one of the first titles that we were working with Brian Johnson, uh, who's local to us here, uh, from Frostforge. And that game has a long and storied history. It went through a couple publishers, and then he finally said, we said, you know, Brian, I think you could do this through Kickstarter. This was back in 2011, right? Mm-hmm. An ancient history in Kickstarter terms. And we actually went through that whole process. And then eventually, over the course of that time, we converted it into a game that was published by GameSloot because we realized we had just done that entire process. And so since then, we've, we have a lot of titles that are actually just coming out in 2013. Uh, so a lot of people until this year had not seen anything. A lot of people still don't realize that we publish games. They just think of us as a, a fulfillment platform or a, you know that we sell stuff, and they're just like, oh, they're a weird company. We don't really know what they do. So we do have, you know, we do fulfillment, just basic fulfillment. We call that ship naked. That's just if you want us to ship your stuff for you. Uh, and then we have our sales channel that's game still supported. So if you have a game that you like dice, hate me games, you know, they make the games, they're the publisher and we just integrate it into our sales channels and we sell it worldwide through our stores and distribution partners, integrate it with our authorized online stores like Amazon and those sorts of places. And then we have our own published games, which of course we also do the fulfillment and the distribution and sales for. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what the, what we're going to get at to here as we go along, because that is part of probably the questions that I'm getting and stuff is the confusion on, you know, just because it has a game salute tag on it in Kickstarter doesn't mean it's your game. Right. And we've done different brandings with that over the years. And uh, we've tried it. We had all these sort of what I thought were cute little sub brands. So springboard was sort of designed as a platform brand uh, that, 
was, hey, this is a, it's more than just a Kickstarter campaign or a crowdfunding campaign. And, you know, at the time it was Indiegogo and Ululi and all these different campaigns. And so like Springboard was our turn for like, this is a campaign that we approve, that we like, but we didn't want to have it say Game Salute because we do more than that. At the time we were doing news. We we're like, we don't want to confuse the news with this Kickstarter support thing that we do. And then eventually it was like, hey, we don't want to confuse it with this support that we do either. So we called it Featured Fulfillment at the time. You know, so they're all sort of sub-brands. And the idea of that was to make it clearer that like, oh, you're we're Featured Fulfillment. We're Springboard, et cetera. But we found what that really meant is that as, as clever as I thought that was, which I should have known this as somebody that named my company Myriad Games, which I thought was a fairly common word. And now <laughs> nobody can spell it or knows what it means. So... <laughs> We, we thought that those would clarify things and really just confuse people. All you need is a bigger web presence and they will learn the word. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And, and, and that was the, you know, the rate of growth that we saw. Uh, we, we had grown quite a bit up to the beginning of 2011. And uh, even in 2011 to 2012, we grew 750%. So you've got to put in perspective, once you get up to millions and millions of dollars of revenue from you know, what was a part-time gig of doing news, like three years before, that's a huge growth curve for us to keep up with. So it's certainly not just me, but that brand confusion comes from the fact that we do so much stuff. And so the best sort of way that I've found to explain to people is that we are a platform. And if you look at the actual way that the industry works, this sort of stuff happens all the time. Like Fantasy Flight Games publishes games that they did not make, mm-hmm. but they have the Fantasy Flight logo on them. So they like dust games, right? They'll bring some of those in. Oh, okay, great. And they'll put their logo on them. Sometimes they'll put both logos on them. Uh, Z-Man games is the same thing. There are whole companies like Rio Grande games. That's what they did. Like they're in, in our terminology, they would be a distributor, not a publisher. In their terminology, they'd be a publisher or a co-publisher. And if you go to Europe, it gets even more confusing. So don't even get me started on that. But it really, you know, these sorts of things that we're doing are not new. It's just that most companies don't do all of those, or at least they don't do them publicly. And that's another thing that's different about us is because we do so much on Kickstarter, a lot of that stuff is public. So we not only get to bear the the weight of the success of, of what we've helped to do, but we also get to bear the brunt of any mistakes that uh, are made by people that we work with or that we make ourselves. We make mistakes and we own up to those. We say, hey, we made these mistakes. But also if somebody else that we're working with makes a mistake, it's easier to blame us for that than to say, oh, you know, if you're back to campaign on Kickstarter, you don't want to complain about the guy that made the game for you. You like the guy. So you're like, who else can I blame? Oh, look, Game Salute is involved in this in some way. The way we're shipping the packages <laughs> out or something. Let's blame them. And so we, we, the rule I use is I use it in stronger language than this. But basically, if we screw up, we'll fix it, we'll pay for it, and we'll admit it. If you screw up, you admit it, you pay for it, and we'll help you fix it. That's the deal. So if you're a client of ours, that's sort of the mantra that we use. But we have run into people in the past who would just sort of throw us under the bus for things that are out of our control. Like, why haven't you shipped these things yet? They're not in our warehouse. Yeah, but you should have shipped them. I don't know what to tell you. I don't have a spin time. I don't have a TARDIS, right? I can't fly over to where you are in the future and get your product that hasn't arrived yet and then ship it out. So we've been improving that as we go, but we have found that, um, you know, we used to have powered by Game Salute, Game Salute supported. We still have some sort of sub programs like Game Salute Guaranteed is our money back guarantee. We have a Game Salute Local Support, which is a program that, you know, basically gets full margin to local stores, even if you back it on Kickstarter. Um, so there are programs that we use for that. But we actually just updated our logo recently in the last few months. A uh, new beautiful logo. If you go to gamesalute.com, you can see it in the upper left. And uh, we found that it's actually simpler now if we just put our Gamesalute logo on it. And then people can figure out what we're doing from there. Because after a couple of years of trying to explain to people, well, this is what they were doing for these guys. This is what we're doing for these guys. Nobody really got it anyway. So, Well, that's why you're talking to us right now. Because <laughs> people go. still that's aren't getting of, it. I need to make more time to get on podcasts. <laughs> I do I do quite a few. But uh 
it's tough to it's still tough to get the word out there. So I definitely appreciate the invite, and I'm always happy to talk about it. Jordan, you had a question. Well, you mentioned uh, the game slew money back guarantee. Has there been too many ch- times you've you've had to honor that, or do you have success at all enough success at all levels that you're not really worrying about that on a day to day basis? Because that's a, that's a pretty big guarantee to make. Sure. And actually ours, there's been a lot of guarantees that apply for like the Kickstarter. Like if you get your Kickstarter pledge and you don't like it within 30 days, you can mail it back to us. We actually extend ours to any, for anything that we publish that has our GameSlut logo on it. We extend that for both the Kickstarter and for if you bought it at the store. So it's not like within 30 days of the end of the campaign or when you get it from the campaign or anything like that. It's like if you go out and you buy Island Fortress in the store right now and you don't like it, you send it back to us and we'll give you a full refund. And that's just something that we stand behind because we want you, we don't want you to have our game if you don't like it because we want you to have a game that you'll like. And most of the time what people do with that, people use it very rarely because that's just really, they, they're only buying things they think they're going to like. Right. But if they do get something, we've all had this experience, man, I really thought I would like this game and I don't like it. Well, my options are have that game sitting on my shelf, reminding me of how much I dislike this game from game <laughs> or Getting rid of it and getting something, usually they say, oh, can I just get a different game? You know, Can I get Pixel Lincoln instead or nothing personal? They'll say, yeah, no problem, right? I mean, you're going to pay for the shipping to get it back to us, so there's a little expense there for you. So we don't have a lot of people abusing it, just willy-nilly, just sending us stuff for fun or like renting games that way because there is cost to it. <laughs> but we're going to pay the cost to ship you whatever it is back, so there's a significant amount of cost for us. So it, it is a, I think it's an important guarantee because – that's how we grow the brand overall, and we've had very good success with that. Most of the people that buy our games really enjoy them. We've had only a handful of people actually take us up on that. Um, we actually offer a different version of that for stores as well. So we do sort of stock balancing for stores because we especially, as a store owner, I know I don't want a bunch of games sitting on my shelf that aren't selling. I'd rather, I'd rather as a publisher, swap that out with you to get stuff on your shelves that's going to sell because then you're going to come back and buy more of my games later. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole idea behind that. I, I think it, it is definitely costly, but... It's not overly excessively costly, and it's part of that brand value that we want to deliver to all our customers. And at the store level, is that a dollar-for-dollar ratio, or is there a prorating there for return stock? It's a stock. So, I mean, generally, the deal is that you you ship stuff back to us. We'll give you equal value of Mm -hmm. stuff, and individual stores will coordinate that with our sales team. So they would email sales at gamesalute.com or call our 1-800 number for that. We Again, we get that very rarely because... Because we offer it, stores are more likely to take a chance on our games. And because our our team is making good games, we get very few that are returned. So I guess, yeah, if we made some horrible game, I don't want to pick on an individual title, but if we made some ridiculously horrible game, then theoretically we would get a ton of returns. People would swap them out and get Alien Frontiers instead or something like that. Here, we'll help you out. If you need this example later in the episode, you can say the All Us Geeks game because we're used to uh, people <laughs> referring to us as horrible. So okay. we're, we're good with it. There you go. <laughs> you know, let me take you back just a little bit, if you don't mind, because like I said, I, I kind of like to get to know some of the people I'm talking to. So I'm really curious, uh, what drew you to the gaming industry initially? Well, initially, I've been doing this since I was in high school. So, I mean, I I just love my family, a big family, just came back from Thanksgiving, right? So we all played <laughs> horrible games like Monopoly, which we do every year. And I crushed everyone, I will have you know. <laughs> With Orange, best Monopoly on the board. So, but we, we just play games. I grew up very poor. Like we, we grew up in the, in the rural area. We had nothing to do. You know, we had three TV channels, really two and a half. And, uh, and we played out. I grew up on a farm. We played outside and stuff. But what we would do, cause it's uh, playing board games is such a cost effective, you know, form of entertainment. We would just play games. 
and play, play with some toys and stuff. But like we games are really good, especially for big families. So I just grew up with that ever since I was five or something. Right. So it wasn't really, I got into gaming. It was just like, well, I play games and a lot of people are that way. It's not like there's a gamer gene that just gets to us. Like you go to anybody I'm like, Oh, I love playing games. My mom plays backgammon or Parcheesi or bridge. My grandparents, right. My grandfather who, whose parents were directly from Italy, they played bridge like competitively. Like my grandfather, my grandmother, who was, my grandfather passed away when he was like 94, not too long ago. So like he had a long, full life. And like way back, you know, at the beginning of the 1900s, they were playing bridge competitively. Like we would go play magic, that sort of thing. So there's a huge culture of, this is something that people don't realize about tabletop games, where we tend to think as geeks, we think like we are a class of people that are set apart and we love games more than other people. And it's not really true. It's just that we like a wider variety of games. You know, we're more open to accepting different games. But really, when you break it down, everybody has games that they love. So out of that love of games, we started develop or we started, you know, running events. Like I would run magic tournaments at local colleges and do birthday parties at my house and we'd play games and all that sort of stuff. And then that just developed into doing more events, selling games, you know, because we wanted to share them with people. Because that was back when 99 to 2000, 2001, when board games were really starting to come in. Euro games like Puerto Rico were starting to come in heavily. And so I actually did a couple of independent studies in college about the mechanics of games and how they were, how people rate them. So did you know, for instance, that if you rate a game on a 10 point scale, you will rate a game regardless of all other factors and across all people. This was, uh, I think we had 50 or 60 different people that were in this study. You will rate a game two points higher if you win. <laughs> so if you want to get, if you ever play a game with a reviewer and you want to give a good review, just make sure you lose. <laughs> they win. Is that why we never agree? Because one of us has to win. There you go. So I bet you if you rated it on a scale, one of you would, would give it an eight, one of you would, would give it a six. So it was very interesting to see that sort of stuff. So I've always been interested in those games and, and sort of delving into to games. And then the metagame of games itself. And you get into that a lot if you if you play competitive games like Magic or uh, you see this even with board game communities where you'll have sort of a metagame that's going on of who wants to play with who and what games beat what specifically in competitive games like lcgs so that's that's sort of my background but yeah i I just got it i didn't really get into it i was just i've been in it ever since i can remember all right but there's an obvious transition between i play a lot of games to i'm in it for the business side of things well i also have a degree in business so kind of during (laughs) while i was getting that and i treat business as effectively a big i I treat business as a as a very large semi-cooperative game that's what it is. <laughs> nice. So I am a very collaborative person by nature. So I like to cooperate with people and I, I like to, Hey, how can we, how can we find things that'll work for both of us? How can we find things that will win? Because there's a lot of two plus two equals five in business. It was sort of a natural thing because I'm not working right now. Like it's, it's seven thirty eight at night and I'm not working. I'm just making a move in a game that I'm playing. That is my life. And when I go home and I watch an episode of Firefly or whatever, I'm going to also be, enjoying my life. That's it. And so that works very well with my family. You know, I have two boys now and my wife and with my extended family, you know, my family at home and the people that I work with. So there wasn't really a decision point. There wasn't like, I don't know, do I want to work in an industry where I'm doing something every day that I enjoy? I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. Now, you don't make a lot of money, if any. So that's that's a downside. But I was used to that because I was always poor. So I just said, yeah, I can, you know, stay not making a lot of money in order to enjoy what I'm doing and to, and to improve things overall. Cause that's a lot of what you, what you want to do with the game overall is not for just me to win the game of business, right. In tabletop business, but to provide tools for other people to win because then other people are invested in your success. So that's a lot of the growth of not only game salute, but 
sort of my career in the industry is finding ways to provide benefits, whether it's to your customers who just want a better experience and whatever they're doing, they want a better selection of games, they want better prices, they want a better local support for events, that sort of thing. Or whether it's a client that's saying, hey, I really, I have this problem. I have to ship my Kickstarter games and people have to pay VAT in Europe and it's expensive. We're like, yes, that is a problem. And that's effectively what GameSolute was designed to solve. It's not like we had those answers. When we started, we said, we have, we have no idea what the answers to these are going to be. But we at least are willing to actually try and do something about it, as opposed to the belly aching that's been happening for the last 30 years throughout the industry where people go, <laughs> yeah, that is a shame. What should we do about it? I don't know. Let's play another game. So this this is my game that I play. I mean, I also play games. But yeah, the the my life is a is a giant interactive game. So how about we go through the different processes that people interact with Game Salute since that seems to be where some of the confusion is. So one way that people can interact with Game Salute is Game Salute is the publisher. Yep. So you're a developer or a designer and we publish your games, so we publish games by people like uh, Mike Elliott did Thunderstone, Richard Launius. We have Legends of the American Frontier coming up, which is, you know, Richard's the designer of Arkham Horror. Um, we've got a ton of great titles. You go to gameslow.com slash games, you can see all of them listed up there, both new designers and existing designers. So that's a that's a very, very classical way that we support the industry is just finding great games and publishing them and making sure they're really top notch. And so I think uh, one of the questions I had somewhere along here was your process for taking on games. Uh, you know, do they go through a vetting process and that kind of stuff in these different levels? So. No, we pretty much just take whatever people send us and we just publish it. That's, I think you can see that from the quality of games <laughs> that we put on the market. Um, we actually have a submission page at gamesloop.com slash submissions, or you can just click on submissions on the main page. And as of this email, as of today, we are at... Submission number 755 since we started doing this about 18 months ago. So in the last few months, we're at an average of about 1.6 submissions a day. And we look at a lot of those submissions. There's a very detailed form that asks you a bunch of details on how many times you play tested this game. What is this game similar to? Who's going to love this game? Who's going to hate this game? I forget what the term for it is. It's a certain type of interview technique where you're asking for relevant data, uh, but it's very detailed. So we get all that, we review this brief that we get in our database, and then we decide if we want to see a prototype from there. And most of the time we just say, no, it doesn't look like your game's fully developed, or it looks like it has too much of an overlap with other games in the market, or it looks like, you know, it's just too expensive to make or something like that. We can tell that right away just from looking at the, the form. Then if we get a prototype, we'll have them send it to one of our evaluation offices. We'll evaluate it. Usually in about four to six weeks, we'll get back to people and say, you know, here's what we think. Uh, you know, here's a, usually we're sending a decline letter that says, Thanks very much, but you know, your game isn't right for publishing. And the worst, the hardest thing about that is explaining to people that it's not that your game is bad. Like your game might be bad, but it's actually not that your game is bad that makes us not want to publish it. It's just that there's so many other factors that come into play and your game really has to pop out and stand out, have something that will make it successful commercially, make people want to buy it, pick it up because there's such a quantity of games coming up. And that's gotten exacerbated with crowdfunding because everybody just goes, all the people that said, oh, I went to a bunch of publishers and nobody would publish my game. They just decided to publish it themselves with varying degrees of success. So we evaluate all those. We get a bunch of prototypes in. I think this year we've signed about nine titles to publish uh, in, well, 11 months so far because we're just starting December. So we actually don't sign that many titles to publish. It always looks like we put a ton of stuff out and we do have a lot of games coming out. But out of 528 games, we've signed nine of them. So that's uh, 
that actually get signed and make it to publish. So that's sort of our filtering process. And then it takes another about a year for all the art and development and funding and marketing and production and all that stuff. That can take one to two years from start to finish. So that's the process we're talking about right now is Game Salute as the publisher, which you're going to get the typical publisher involvement, which would, like you said, the art and, and uh, rules and, and feedback and changes and all that good stuff. And basically, Game Salute kind of takes ownership of the project at, at, in this process that we're talking about right now. Correct. Yeah. And we like to have a clean handoff. So we actually put a development deadline in there. And this is much from our experience working on previous titles where the designers really want to fiddle with things. And so you have to say, no, 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 you hand me the final rule set as of this date. And after that, you're not allowed to make any more changes because otherwise it just delays things inevitably. So we've gotten better about that. And that's shortened our production cycle, which has helped quite a bit. So we really look for a really polished, done title. We're not looking for concepts. So many people think the game design is about, oh, I came up with this great idea. Oh, what's the, what's the game? Well, it's a worker placement game, something a steampunk universe that uses role selection. Okay, do you have a copy of the rules? Well, I haven't written the rules yet, but they're in my head. Okay, well, then you don't have a game yet. Well, I've written the rules and I've playtested a couple times. Okay, you still don't have a game. Until you've playtested it and developed it and iterated it fully with lots of different people, you don't have a finished game. So that's what we're looking for when we look at something that we publish. And actually, the next step when we do uh, distribution and sales, which is our game salute supported, you publish the game, somebody like Dice Hate Me, has made a game and they want us to handle all the logistics and sales for it. That's actually even easier on our end because then we say, well, we're assuming that your game is done, right? So send us the finished game. And then we look at the game and we decide whether or not it's good enough for us to solicit and add to our sales platform and all that. You also have a, a step in the process or a process where you run the Kickstarter, but you're not necessarily responsible for the game and development of the game. We do. And most of the time, that's a supported campaign. So that this would be something where we're going to distribute it, they're going to publish it, but we're going to help them run the campaign because that's part of the marketing support that we're going to do for the game. So that'd be something like Dreaming Spires, uh, where they're publishing it. And actually, our logo will be on there, too, mm -hmm. because they're the publisher. But we're, you know, we really like the game. The game is good, but they want to be the publisher. They want to do all that stuff that publishing entails. Or at least they think they do for their first game. A lot of people come back and they say, hey, for my next game, could you publish it for me? I don't want to do all that stuff anymore. So that's the real difference there is that when we run those campaigns, we do have a few campaigns that we've done where people are we're sort of a campaign manager for hire mm -hmm. where we say, okay, we're not going to be selling or distributing your game. You just want us to run the campaign. And that's just by virtue of the fact that we've done 135 successful campaigns. So we have all these people that either have done campaigns and they realize how much of a pain they are and they say, oh, I don't want to do that again. Can you do that for me? Then there's the people that just go, man, you have a really good success rate because we know how to do these things now. Not because we're perfect or great or whatever, but because we've made all those mistakes, right? Like we're, we've got all the bruises. We've got all the cuts from making those mistakes over three years ever since Kickstarter began. So we've, we've learned a bit since then, and that helps our success rate. So for that process, is it the same vetting process or is it a little more casual of a vetting process because you're not fully responsible for the game? Or? Well, no, we, we still have to vet because the way that our, if we're running a campaign, we don't actually get paid unless it's successful. So we're actually investing a lot of time and energy into that. So a lot of our staff time, which translates into money, you know, we have to pay for that. So we, we vet that just like we would any other submission. So it's, it's akin to a game salute supported one. Usually the only reason folks would use that is if they already are in distribution and they don't want to sort of upset their existing relationships. Uh, and they just say, hey, listen, we don't want to go exclusive with you guys. 
we just want you to, but we really like what you do to running our campaign and doing the fulfillment for it and all that sort of stuff. And that's, that's a growing uh, number of people, but it's, that's still a relatively small handful of people that have done that sort of thing. Okay. And then the, the next step down kind of would be people that are running their own campaigns uh, under their name, but they use you for fulfillment. Correct. That's kind of the next one. Right. And you have to be careful when you talk about fulfillment because there's okay. there's basic fulfillment, which is just we fulfill and ship things. Mm-hmm. And that we can do for pretty much anybody. We just call that ship naked. We ship naked. That's it. It's just bare naked shipping. You know, there's no added fees. There's no hidden charges, whatever. It's just fulfillment and shipping. If you're talking about the sales part of it, like what we do for Dice Hate Me Games, that we obviously do the fulfillment for their campaigns. Mm-hmm. But then we also do all their sales and solicitation and ongoing support. So that's a whole separate channel, and that you have to qualify for. Ship naked, I mean, you can come to me tomorrow and say, I've got a bunch of widgets I want to ship. And we say, okay, do they exist, and can you pay for the shipping? And you say, yes, I can. And we say, okay, great, you're all set. Because <laughs> we're not investing any of our time. We're not putting on our sales platform. We're not sending anything out. It's just you ship stuff to our, our warehouse, and we ship it out for you. And we're, we're good at that because we have a good team now. We've expanded significantly over what we were a year and a half ago. So now we just got uh, Twin Tin Bots, which is one that uh, Eric Conweezy did from Flatline Games. Yep. And we got the U.S. pledges for that. They did the EU fulfillment over in Europe. We got the U.S. pledges in for it, I think, two days ago, and we shipped them out the next day. And so they're done. That's just like we did the shipping. That's it. But they're doing their own sales on that title. So we're not. it's not on our website. You won't see it there. It's not something that we're doing solicitation for. And that's what I call our sales platform. That's the easiest way to distinguish it. So you've got just straight shipping and fulfillment. You've got sales platform stuff, games that supported, which includes obviously shipping and fulfillment. And then you've got published titles. And those are the ones that obviously we're doing the whole kit and caboodle for. Okay. You know, you mentioned uh, EU fulfillment and you are an international company. You, you do have teams in North America, Europe, and Australia. Mm-hmm. Do those teams, are they all, you know, a 100% mimic of your North American team or is everything filtered through the U.S. and you just have people for local issues as it were? So we actually have different types of folks in different areas. Dan Mayer, art director, is out in Australia. And so that helps because we can attend things like PAX Australia. And we actually do have partners down there with warehouses to ship stuff out from there. It's actually more cost effective, we find, to ship that because our rates are so good from the U.S. So we mostly ship those from the U.S. But Dan's job down there is just really art direction. So that's primarily what he does. And we have other affiliates there that do our warehousing and fulfillment. And then for the U.K., we have Michael Fox, who's there in the U.K., and he does a lot of our Kickstarter customer service and support. And he also does, we have a warehouse there that we just opened in the UK uh, that we do EU fulfillment through. So that's sort of how we handle it. Their, their job is not to do all the stuff that we do here because we have 21 people. So we have way more people here in the US that do stuff for us here. And even within the US, we have offices in LA, Seattle, Indianapolis, and up in New Hampshire. So we've got our main offices in New Hampshire, just north of Boston. And so that's where our primary stuff goes. And then we tag those other people in as we need to. So if we're going, hey, we're going to go to UK Games Expo. Michael, you're conveniently in the UK. You can just take the train and go to UK Games Expo and show us stuff there. Uh, Dan May lives in Melbourne, which is where PAX Australia was this year. So it still costs us quite a bit of money to send all the product over there, coordinate volunteers, et cetera. But it's easier to have some boots on the ground to do that stuff. So that's sort of how our team is set up. Most of us are in the US still, but we have those international branches, so to speak. Have we hit all the different tiers that people can utilize Game Salute? The only other one that we mentioned a little bit at the beginning is, is GameBugle.com, which is really just a news site. And that's really where we started originally. And now that's its own separate thing. 
So that's if you have, that covers industry news for the whole industry. So you can follow us on Twitter at GameBugle. You can look for us on Facebook as GameBugle, or you can just go to GameBugle.com. And so that's really a separate entity. That's sort of like our news division. So that's that's another way. People don't really use that unless they wanted to advertise on the site. But that's just, that's covering news for everybody. It's not just our stuff. That's covering every title that releases, Days of Wonder, Fantasy Flight, you know, everything. It's covering all bits of news. So that's sort of our other portion of it. But that's not really a a thing you would engage in so much as it is just, oh, it's another board game news site, that sort of thing. We like to think it's the best one, but we'll leave that up to you to decide. <laughs> well, we also did get quite a few questions, unless you have something that you want to No, that's all. Okay, we've got some questions that we got from emails and Twitter, and Dan has been kind enough to say that he is uh, more than happy to try to answer as many of these as we can get in here. So, that's right. This is an AMA. It's uh, All Us Geeks AMA. <laughs> I like it like it. We need to do more of these. <laughs> we're going to open the phone. No, we're not. <laughs> uh, let's see. As a longstanding and, and secure gaming company, why did you run a Kickstarter to bring SOS Titanic over from the Europe? Now, that actually was not Game Salute published, right? That was one you guys is powered by. Uh, that's a Game Salute supported title, so They're we're supported, selling yeah. distributing that. That's published by Ludonaut, and they do games like Lewis and Clark, SOS Titanic, Little Prince, and Shiteno. And so that's one where we do those import campaigns. The primary reason we do Kickstarter campaigns is for the sales and marketing and to engage the customers, the hardcore customers that are really excited about the game. So for an import campaign, you you don't have the aspect of the campaign where you're building the product because it's already done. So we try and make that clear on there. We say, listen, this, this product's done. You know, that's why we set a relatively low goal on it because we don't really need the money to fund. And that's the idea of Kickstarter is that ask for what you need. Well, we don't really need that money to make the game. That's that's why we set that low goal. But we want to give people the first opportunity, early adopters, that first opportunity to participate and also to show other people. Because there's a lot of that social aspect to Kickstarter. You can follow people on Kickstarter. They share stuff about it on Facebook and Twitter. Where if we just did a, a pre-order campaign on our website or something, you don't get that same level of buzz. So that's why we do campaigns like that is really as a launch. We do it as like a promotional launch. or a, Think of it like a premiere for a movie. That's what our Kickstarter campaigns are for those types of products. Okay. And I think that somewhat answers uh, this one that goes into that as well. But as a company that publishes games repeatedly and successfully, why continue to pursue a business model that forfeits about 10% of your income? So basically, is there, do you see a line? There's a ton of back and forth about Kickstarter and how it's used and whether or not the big guys should be using it, you know, all of that stuff. And it, yep. it, there's a lot of it that makes sense on the business side. If, if you look at the business side of things, but do you see a divide or do you see somewhere along the line where that 10% as, as they're pointing out is something that you want to keep in house as you grow? Well, you're actually losing a lot more than that. Cause you're also losing the huge amount that goes to free shipping to the customer. So that's a, a huge portion that goes out. And then you're also losing something that people forget about, which is the administrative time, which is an even bigger chart. That's bigger than the 10% by far. That's all the time that it takes to set up the campaign, to run the campaign, to answer questions, to do the fulfillment, to do all that stuff. That's a huge investment. And so, yeah, we made the calculation that the trade-off in sales and marketing is worth all of that effort. And we have a fairly good track record at doing that. Now, the reason why you wouldn't do that, if we treat that as a sales and marketing platform, which is what most people are doing it for, and we have both types of projects, right? We have projects where we really need that money in order to make this game. And we've had failed projects where we have not made the game. And then we have projects where, hey, we only need a little bit of money, but we just want to find out what the demand is. That's an especially important thing for import campaigns, for instance. We also want to know how many to produce. 
So that's the, that is absolutely worth that combination right now, at least is absolutely worth that investment that we make both an administrative input, the 10% that we pay to Amazon and Kickstarter, which the person that you'd pay to payment processing for Amazon is sort of, it's higher than what you would normally pay for payment processing, but you'd be paying something anyway. So it's not 10%. It's like 6%. That's the actual differential. And yes, we effectively made the calculation that it's worth it. Now, Kickstarter is becoming of diminished utility the more it gets used. You've got a lot of really big hits like Alien Frontiers 4th Edition. Most of those are based on success, already successful things. Like Monty Cook puts a role-playing Kickstarter on there. It doesn't fund it a million dollars or half a million dollars or whatever because it's a role-playing Kickstarter. It does it because it's Monty Cook. If Monty Cook put that up on his website, he could generate a lot of buzz and pre-orders and stuff too. But all these companies, all these established entities, Days of Wonder, Cryptozoic, Queen Games, you know, all these folks are making that calculation that the sales and marketing benefit are worth all the other expenses. And then we just look at it from the perspective, how can we make those campaigns the most fun for the backer, for the customer? And how can we engage them to help them give them a special promo or help them actually make the game? Like King's Chords that we did relatively recently, that game, we had no idea. If we had just made that game, we would have printed far too few it would have sold out instantly when it released, and then a bunch of people would have been disappointed, and we would have lost all the buzz that would have happened around its release. So by doing that Kickstarter campaign and having people tell us in advance, wow, this is really awesome, now we produced more, now we can build on that buzz, and then we can have a better sort of feel for our investment in each line. So there's lots of benefits there. There's a huge number of costs, and that's a constant balance that we're trying to strike. But at the time, for the time being, it is definitely worth it. And actually, I, I kind of want to flip that question a little bit for my own question. And that would be to give uh, our listeners your take on what would game salute look like if Kickstarter was not even in the scenario? Well, I mean, considering that most of our clients that we did fulfillment for and stuff came to us because they were asking us to do stuff for Kickstarter. That's a huge portion, but we did have a lot of clients like Serling games that wasn't using Kickstarter originally smiley pop that did Ella minis. It's a great little card game. So we'd, we'd probably look a lot like what we look like now, but just smaller because that's, that's what's fueled our growth is, is the rapid number of people coming into the marketplace and the marketplace needs a filter for that. They need somebody to go, wait a minute, where, how are we going to handle all this stuff? And the existing infrastructure can't handle it. It's not set up to manage that much stuff. Uh, and, and this, this was not the reason I say that I can say with fair amount of confidence that we would look about the same is that this stuff happened way back before Kickstarter. There were always people making their own games independently that they needed a sales channel. They needed fulfillment. They needed, you know, or they were just developing games. They wanted them published. Those things always existed. It's just that Kickstarter threw a bunch of kerosene on the fire and then blew it up. So we would definitely be a lot smaller than we are now, but we would probably be a lot of the same focus. We might not even be where we are now yet because it might have taken longer to, for that to build up. Because, again, these are all just based on requests from customers, directly from clients. Uh, whether they're publishers or individual customers or, you know, designers or whoever. Do you think like with, without Kickstarter in the mix, would you be up to having signed nine games on to publish yourself, take on that risk? No, we would not be at that point yet. Maybe in the future, maybe like two, three years from now, we would have gotten to that point. But again, that's just an acceleration factor. And actually it's created some challenges there because once people saw, oh, I can put my Kickstarter up there, they just see the gross amount of money. So if they say, oh, I raised a million dollars, or you could raise a million dollars, let's say, they don't actually look at campaigns that raise $750,000 or $800,000, like Ogre that just shipped, and, and realize that, <laughs> oh, they raised $800,000, and then they lost money. Mm -hmm. 
That's what happens with the vast majority of campaigns. Whether they raise $30,000 or $4,000 or a million dollars, they usually lose money. And so that gave us a little more confidence once we'd done enough of those that we'd fulfilled and that we'd seen some of the mistakes. That's when we said, wait a minute, we can do that a little better and not lose as much money or just not lose money. Because really what we're doing is we're investing in that. We're sort of a hybrid. Because when we when you see a campaign on there that says, hey, we need $1,000 for this game, well, that game might cost $9,000 to produce for a small card game. But we're basically saying we need a thousand dollars. We don't get a thousand dollars. We don't get at least a hundred backers or whatever. Then we were wrong. We're using it as a stop check for ourselves. So we think this game is awesome. We want to make it. This is how we're going to make it look. This is what we're going to do. This is the quality. And then if we find out, oh no, there wasn't enough people that were interested in that, then we can either send it back to development and be like, what was wrong with this that people weren't interested? Or we can save ourselves that extra money. But we are underwriting those games by investing in them. So if we only raise a thousand and one dollars. We invest the extra eight grand to make that game. So we're not sacrificing quality for that, but it's just we're literally asking for a market test and we're asking for what we need to make the game. So if you see a game from us that needs $30,000, it means we actually need $30,000. It means we probably actually need like forty-five dollars or $50,000 or $55,000, but we're willing to cover that difference. But we want to know that at least thirty grand is is interest in the marketplace. And so that definitely allows us to, to move forward with publishing more titles, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're publishing more than a bunch of companies would have done over time. It's just a function of cash flow. And that's what Kickstarter helps with. This question here is talking about asking to help this person understand about game salute selling games online, but local game stores not being able to. Okay. So obviously as the owner of local game stores, we've always had that. We definitely want to have local stores selling it. So we, that's always been the case. Local stores have always been able to sell our games and they always can. And what we do is we actually set up a, a sales channel that supports them a little better. And without getting into too many of the nitty gritty of behind the scenes stuff, effectively it means that a lot of stores, your profit margins, net profit margins around three to five percent. So if you lose five percent off of your, off of your gross margin, then that's really hitting your bottom line significantly. And that's how sliding discounts work in the industry. So if you're a small store, you get much lower discounts because you're not buying as much in volume, which makes sense from a business standpoint. But we actually do true net pricing. So if you're a store, we give you full keystone pricing if you buy one copy of every game or 100 copies of the game. That's something we built into our sales channels. Then online, all our sales, all local stores are authorized to sell it in their local territory. That's what they're, they're licensed for. And all online stores are only authorized online stores are allowed to sell our titles. And that's because we want a certain type of store featuring our games. And we want to know that there's a certain customer experience that they're getting. And we also want to make sure that we're driving sales through to local stores, which we can't necessarily do if we just let every Tom, Dick, and Harry sell their sell our stuff online. So that's where we have authorized online stores like Amazon, like shop.gamesalute.com, and a bunch of others that we're adding, including some international ones uh, like Good Games in Australia. So those stores, we can focus that, drive that into those, and then we have better information about who's buying those games. So we know, for instance, if you sell into distribution normally in the industry, you have no idea how much of that is selling online versus how much is selling locally. You have no way of knowing what stores are selling your games. In our system, we know all the stores that are selling our games, so we can therefore list them on GameStoreLocator.com, and therefore we know that if somebody asks, oh, does this store carry our games? Yes, this store signed up, they carry your games. There you go. Like We can drive business to them. So that's exactly why we built that up. Now, with the plethora of games out there, maybe local stores don't carry our games, but they absolutely have access to them, either through their local distributor in their country. Here in the U.S., we go through ACD distribution, or you can purchase it from us directly at GameSolute. 
And that's in order for us to provide that best level of service, whether it's free or reduced cost demo copies, whether it's higher margins for all, everybody in that chain. Uh, that's why we have our sales system set up the way we have. But if you ever have any trouble with any of your stores getting that, just email sales at gamesalute.com, or you can go right through the website. There's a contact form, and our sales team will reach right out to them, answer any questions that they have, and you know make sure that they're all set up. I've got a bunch of different questions about specific games and when they're going to ship. So instead of going down that rabbit hole, (laughs) how about we uh, just talk about uh, how does the uh, shipping queue work for shipping and fulfillment queue work for game salute as things come in? Sure. So each game, obviously this is how sort of games work in general is when the game gets produced, but you don't really know when it's going to get produced, then it gets shipped. Then you don't really know when it's going to be finished shipping. For instance, we have a bunch of games, uh, including Luchador. I'll give a shout out to that (laughs) one because a bunch of people have questions about that. That's just been stuck in customs for like three weeks. So we're just waiting for it to get through customs. And that sort of thing happens. Usually, like we just had a SOS Titanic come in today, actually. I think that starts shipping to Kickstarter backers on Friday. And then next week, it'll release uh, to pre-orders. And it'll be in stores shortly thereafter, I think that week or maybe the week after that. And that's usually the turnaround that you'll see is maybe two, three weeks. We always ship to Kickstarter backers first and pre-orders. Uh, and we try and sync pre-orders up to, to land right around the same time that they that they show up in stores. Because we don't want to penalize you if you want to buy through your local store. That's what our whole local support program is for. So that's sort of the general timeline. But there's always something that comes into that. So when we actually get the product in our warehouse, that's when we confirm the street date. And the street date from then will depend on how long it'll take to process the Kickstarter. For instance, if we have 4,800 packages to process, that might take us you know three weeks just to process all the Kickstarter. And then the release date might be two weeks after that actually finishes shipping. Do you find that by managing so many projects that you're on to the next thing rather than supporting past projects? So how do you find that balance? We actually treat that that's a separate team, a sort of division out of the 21 people that we have here. We have our sales team which and our marketing team that is dedicated to support of those ongoing titles. And that's in the channels, you know, at wholesale, at conventions, all that stuff once it's out. And then we have a separate team called Prep. And that prep team does all your Kickstarter stuff, your pre-release stuff. So we actually treat those as two separate things. It's sort of a handoff. So, okay, everybody gets their love from the prep team when they're going through the queue and they get up on Kickstarter and they get featured and then they release. And then they get handed off to the sales team. So if you see that lack of support, I think that tracks across the industry because it's just the new shiny, right? And all Kickstarter has done is just redirected that attention to the not even yet available shiny. So the new shiny looks less shiny because oh, well, that just came out or whatever, right? Like Ogre just released in stores this Friday. The new shiny has kind of become like the disco ball, the strobe light. Yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's just, it's crazy, right? There's too much. <laughs> so people, it's not that like we're not doing ad... We we had a six-figure marketing budget last year, including conventions and advertising and all that. We do everything. We sponsor podcasts. We have ads on BoardGameGeek. We have ads on a bunch of independent websites. We do uh, a ton of conventions. We're doing 22 conventions next year and trade shows. We have promotional copies that go out to reviewers all the time. We have reduced cost and free demo copies that go to stores. Basically anything that works for marketing and a lot of things that don't, we, we do. And we, if we knew which ones were which, we would cut the ones that don't. But we do pretty <laughs> much everything because we want to provide that support. But we could be doing that same level of support and some games hit and some games don't. Some of our games sell 5,000 copies in a year, 10,000 copies. Some of them sell 1,000. And we're scratching our head because we're like, but we did the same, like we did, we featured, why, you know, why is that? It's just the unique factors of that game. There was a hit for the market or there wasn't, there was a hook or there wasn't, you know, there's maybe it got a specific endorsement or it didn't. It was about velociraptors and cannibalism or it wasn't that sort of thing. (laughs) 
So, uh, yes, I mean, that's definitely a factor, and that's a huge factor, that managing time flow for most publishers where you have two or three people running the whole company. But we're not, you know, we have 21 people, so we really are a bunch of different divisions within the same company. We have a fulfillment shipping division. We have a sales division. We have a marketing division. We have a, a, a production division, which is, what, like, making the games, doing all the art, graphic design, production, all that stuff. And they're all separate elements, but they're all part of that cohesive whole. Let's see, we have one here about stretch goals. Today, they're pretty much required, or your backers are looking for them, like, day one. <laughs> but it's more of a question of not necessarily having stretch goals, but more uh, where do you fall on, is it better to have them as extras for all backers or the add-on phenomenon that's kind of going on right now? Yeah, we do both, and it depends on the cost of the item that you're adding. So you can afford lots of incremental increases to improve the quality of all the games. So if you're increasing the quality of the dice or increasing the quality of the card stock or adding a few promo cards, you can add that into the game. Or you can add it into a promo pack that goes with the game for free. But if you're talking about something like Formula E where you're adding an extra board, which would be like a $25 or $30 retail item, that really has to be an add-on because not everybody's going to want it. So if you price the base level so that you can afford to put that add-on board in there, then you would be turning away a bunch of people that didn't want to pay for the add-on board. So in those situations, when they're substantial enough, we make them separate. That's how we distinguish. Uh, and some titles, if it's just an import campaign or something, we don't have any stretch goals because the game's already made. So we're not really playing that game of, well, you know, is it made or not? We just say, nope, this is just a game. Maybe you get a, a bonus thing with it. Like for SOS Titanic, there was a cool score sheet book that we gave. And that went out to all the backers that backed it. But most of the time, we're going to have some little tchotchke or, or stretch goals that go to the base. And then we'll have a bonus thing like Monsters and Maidens we had hey, if you just want the dice game and you want to pay less, here's your option. But if you want to pay like 10 bucks more and get 60 awesome pink maiden meeples to keep track with, rather than keeping track on paper, you can pay 25 bucks and get that as well. But we're not going to roll that into the base cost because we recognize there are two different types of customers for that. So that's how we decide between stretch goals and upgrades. We do both, basically, but we try and keep it within that. We have to keep it within that cost curve. That's the challenge. And then there was a question about, let's uh, have you generalized in Kickstarter where you need to pad time or extra money in getting the game brought to market? The answer is kind of, and it all depends on the volume that you do. So, for instance, something like Alien Frontiers 4th Edition, we ran that campaign. It was just for a promo pack, and it was going to have 20 cards or something like that in it. And it ended up having 67 cards and two custom dice. So that naturally blows out the delivery time window because we have to wait for the art to be done. We have to do all sorts of things. So the fact that those will be, you know, three to six months late is actually relatively early compared to what it probably should be, you know, because we're working full cylinders to get that up. I actually wish that uh, Kickstarter would have a, a range on their date, delivery date. So it would say, listen, if we just barely fund, then this will be delivered in November. But if we hit all our stretch goals that we think we're going to hit, then it'll be May because realistically, you can't finalize that in one date. Now, we do pad in a little bit of extra time. We've gotten better about that. And then we got the other end of the spectrum. Why is this, say, September? Why is it going to take that long? Well, listen, it's only 10 months from now. It takes like eight months just to make the game. So we're adding one month in there for extra time. If we did it the other way around, then you'd be complaining that it was too soon. So we get it on both ends of that spectrum. But the reality of it is that we do pad in a little bit of extra time, but there's always things that come up. There's Customs delays, production delays, art delays, there's all sorts of those things. So really, ideally, it should be a range that you say, listen, if, if, it's a, if it's a simple project, if we have it done now, then that's ready. If it's a more complex project, then that'll be longer. Now, what we have taken to doing to help with that for future projects is that we're actually investing for some 
games where there's a lot of stretch goals that have art. We're investing in the art up front. So we're saying, listen, we'll we'll pay this money just to have it ready to avoid that delay after the campaign. But even then, you could blow through all those stretch goals and then get more stretch goals. So there's a certain amount of discipline required and there's a certain amount of balancing the incessant need for more and more stretch goals versus the realities of do we want to get this game out on time? Well, you've uh, worked on the curiosity of our listeners. <laughs> I think we've gotten most of the questions that were asked us. How about we take a couple seconds here and you can let us know what is Game Salute uh, working on right now on Kickstarter? I think you've got like, what, three, four projects out right now. Sure. I think we have. I do know the Pixel Lincoln re-election one is up because we'll be talking to Jason here not too long. Yeah, so Pixel Lincoln re-election is an expansion. It's a sort of expanding promo pack for the game. So uh, that one's been a lot of fun, and it's got 22 days to go. That's up and live now. And I think the next one we've got, uh, we did some fun stuff with the stretch goals on this one. Like we have, when we get a certain number of BGG fans, we'll unlock stuff. When we get a certain number of backers, we'll unlock stuff, as opposed to just when we get to this dollar amount, we'll unlock stuff. We've got Cluster Fight, which is an awesome party game. It's sort of like Kirk versus Picard versus your mom versus Zombie Nixon versus a teddy bear. And then you all get... It's not just those people, but you get cool stuff, too. Like, okay, what about Zombie Nixon with a flamethrower? And then there's cards that you sort of argue over. So that one's a lot of fun. That is uh, very much a party game, though. Uh, and then we've got uh, just about a day left. So this is probably be funded by the time uh, this goes live. But Villains of Vigilantes, the card game, is, is our uh, superhero card game based on the classic role-playing game. So that one is uh, sort of a living card game format. Uh, but it's a standalone board game that you move your characters around. You have individual decks for each of the heroes, and you actually play the heroes and the villains in that one. And then we always love to hear from people coming on that have been in the Kickstarter realm. Do you have any must-have lessons to share with our independent designers and publishers that are coming up uh, and thinking about using Kickstarter? One, talk to us first, because we'll probably tell you all the <laughs> stuff that, that we've screwed up that you might screw up. And then usually, and we found this over the last maybe nine months to a year, as people talk to us, a lot of people come to us, oh, yeah, but I'm not going to make that mistake because now you told me about it. And then 12 months later, they'll come back, oh, I made that mistake. I lost a bunch of money. So you have to have the determination to hold through. And you say, I'm not going to do any more stretch goals. You can't listen to the 10 people that are posting over and over and over again in the comments. Why don't you give me free shipping to Botswana? Because I would lose money. Like, we had to make that decision not too long ago. So and we're just not going to lose money on Internet. We're not going to pay people to take our games if you're overseas. We thought that was a fairly <laughs> unreasonable expectation that is exacerbated by the fact that everybody does it on Kickstarter accidentally, effectively. I love the note from the guys at Greater Than Games that do Sentinels of the Multiverse where they said, we would be better off from a fiscal standpoint if we just burned all these copies of the games rather than shipping them overseas. <laughs> yeah. It would actually lose us less money. So that would be the number one, two, and three thing I would say is make sure that you've got all that stuff in place, uh, your fulfillment, your shipping, your production. And then I would add a fudge factor of about 20%. All right. That is an awesome tip. And Dan, I want to thank you a lot for coming on. And like I said, we kind of whirlwind this. <laughs> sure, that's what I do. I'm constantly a whirlwind. Now I got a whirlwind home and put the boys to bed. All right. Well, I won't keep you any longer. We've hit just about our hour mark here. And I thank you for taking the time and clarifying some stuff for some people and uh, giving me an opportunity to uh, get to know the game salute side of things a little bit better myself. Absolutely. I appreciate the invitation. Thanks for having us and uh, keep up the good work. All right. So thanks for joining myself and Jordan. And we will talk to you soon with another interview. 